Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning also in, uh, in Reston. So the, the joy of gathering together today is added by the fact uh, that we have another congregation with us. If you can imagine them with us, they're watching uh, from Herndon High School on their first Sunday together. So Reston, good morning to you. It's good to have you with us virtually, and it's good to have all of you in this room. Um, we are starting a series this morning on the Gospel of Mark, which you probably already figured out, and uh, we're excited to begin that together. Um, if you are brand new to, uh, to McLean, or just maybe even brand new to the Bible, and you're not really sure what the Gospel of Mark is or what a gospel is, we're going to talk about that. But generally speaking, um, the Bible gives us four biographies about Jesus, and they're called the Gospels. They're right at the beginning of the New Testament. One of them is written by John Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Um, but these are more than just biographies, the Gospels. They're, um, they're more than just a collection of fun facts about Jesus or even more than just the greatest hits of Jesus's teaching and preaching. Uh, there is a message here. Uh, there is an agenda, if we can call it that. Um, Mark is interested in you knowing who Jesus is, for sure. And that involves knowing some things about what his life was about and what he taught. But what he's more interested in is that you and I understand the significance of that life, that that life, his life, and what his life um, represents and accomplishes is something that, that you really need to know about. And so Mark is going to put that out right at the beginning of his gospel, that this message is something you need to hear because it changes lives. Um, now, I say that knowing that right away, you're, you are probably screening whether this message applies to you or not, because that's what we do all day Every day we screen messages and we assess whether that message is important, like we need to respond to it ASAP, or whether it just goes in the trash or in the spam folder. Um, you know, on my kitchen counter, I've got, you know, different piles of mail, and one of them I'm not sure what to do with yet because on the envelope it says urgent, open immediately. It's even written in something that looks like handwriting. But I have a feeling I'm going to open it up and, and it really doesn't have anything to do with anything I want to have anything to do with. Uh, or this week, you probably got lots and lots of text messages. And uh, some of them, you're like, all right, I got to get back to this person right away. Or I want to get back to this person right away. Others, you're like, I would probably get back to that later. Some you just ghosted out on. But then there was probably one or two, like I got one this week from an unknown number, which is immediately suspicious. And... Um, and the message was, uh, give me Charlie's email. And then, uh, and then right after that, I need Jane's phone number as well. Well, I think I know a couple Charlies and Janes, but I didn't know this person. I said, I, who is this? And they said, wrong number, right? Like, it sounded very urgent, but I had a feeling it didn't actually apply to me at all. And let's not even get into the very existence of a spam folder. I mean, think about that. They could just get rid of spam, like that would be one way to handle the problem or they just give you a folder in which all of the emails that you never need to read, just, they just go into that folder and take all of your space right there in the spam folder. And we're, already, we're always asking this question about messages. Do I need to respond to this? Do I not need to respond to this? We're inundated by the volume. And we may think that this is just a 21st century Western first world problem. And that's, that's mostly right. 
But then again, if you think about Mark's original audience, the people he's writing to in the first century, even though they didn't have the same sort of communication techniques and technology, the fact is they were sorting through messages all the time as well. There were traveling preachers who came through the villages, and there were philosophers, and there were uh, ideas about politics and, and governments. They lived in a world of competing ideas just as much as you and I do. And so Mark knows that he needs to convince them as well as us that the message about Jesus is not only marked urgent, but it is urgent. That, that this message, and this you just get from history, you don't even need to look in the Bible, just look at history and you know, you can find out that this message, is, this message changes lives. It's changed lives radically in every culture, in every country, in every nation, in every generation. And this message still changes lives forever. And so Mark very much at the very beginning of his gospel wants to get our attention to explain what kind of message this is to help us screen it out, not as something that we can set aside or wait for later to decide whether or not it's important, but actually today to grab onto and ask ourselves, what am I going to do with the message of Jesus? So as we walk through that with Mark, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, uh, thank you so much that you give us this opportunity now to sit under your word, help us to uh, have ears to hear and uh, hearts to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go along, I would encourage you, if you, if, if you haven't already, to have your Bible open or an app on your phone. Um, there, we, we gave you the page number for the church Bible if you just want to use one of those. But I'm going to be moving through 15 verses, more or less, today. And so it's just good for you to have it in front of you just so you make sure that uh, I'm staying on track and in the word. And also so just so you can kind of learning reinforcement of putting your eyeballs on the word. So we're going to be in Mark chapter one, verses one through 15. And I want to start with the very first verse, probably a good idea. Um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Well, this tells us immediately what kind of message we're dealing with. Mark is not messing around. He is telling us from the very beginning that this is a royal announcement. That's what kind of message this is. It's a royal announcement. We had a royal announcement from across the pond this past weekend with the uh, Queen's passing and then the announcement that uh, Prince Charles is now King Charles III. And if you watched any of the footage of the various ceremonies or read anything about it, you may have run across these words, which were announced at one point that King Charles is now the only lawful and rightful liege lord. That's very regal language. The only rightful liege lord. But then you listen to Mark, and Mark's language doesn't sound regal, at least not not to our ears, it just sounds kind of religious, right? Like the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is the way that Christians talk about Jesus when they're together. Um, but when you actually understand what Mark is saying, you might, you might hear a different sort of announcement, not just a religious announcement, but really a royal announcement. Um, the only person in Mark's day who is referred to as the son of God who brought good news to the world was Caesar. Uh, in fact, we have inscriptions dating all the way back to the ninth century BC in which the Roman emperor, Caesar, was referred to as the son of God who brought good news, good tidings, gospel, evangel to the world. His birthday was celebrated 
uh, by the Roman Empire, like it or not, as a day of joyful tidings, a day of gospel. He was worshiped as a God on earth. And so Mark isn't just couching this story about Jesus in religious language as if it's just meant for a certain group of people or a certain tribe of people or just for the Israelites or whatever. No, he very much has the world in mind and he is making an announcement that Jesus is greater than Caesar. That's the first thing he says. And then he goes on in verse two to tell us that this great king, the one true king, is also the Christ. In verse two, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah would have been writing about 600 years before, give or take. And he quotes this portion of Isaiah 40. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the image here is from the ancient world. Uh, Kings and queens and other important people would send an advance party ahead of them to literally prepare the way, to smooth out the road, to get the the rocks out of the road, to straighten those curves that are uncomfortable to take if you're royalty. And in this case, the advance party is an advance party of one, at least at this time in history, an advance party of one. We're told right away, verse four, John appeared. So John, we often call him John the Baptist because of what he spent a lot of his time doing, which is baptizing people. Um, he is this promised messenger, this promised voice in the wilderness that's saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Now that's significant, This language is not only language that was applied to the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come to rescue his people from sin and from Satan and from death, but this is the Lord himself is making a personal visit to his people. John is saying he is coming. So um, think about uh, State of the Union Address. Maybe some of you have been in the room when that was happening. Most of us have tuned in at one time or another in our lives, and you know at the very beginning of the event, even before the president gets up to, to speak, the sergeant at arms walks in. And as he walks in, he stands you know, somewhere in the middle of the hallway and he announces in a loud, clear voice, Mr. or Madam Speaker, the president of the United States. Ah, and then the president of the United States walks in. So that's what John's doing. He's stepping onto the world stage and announcing in a loud, clear voice, the Lord, the Messiah, the King has arrived. Okay? Cut to next scene, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. So if those who heard what people were talking about related to Jesus, that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the promised one, if they were expecting a warrior strapped in armor, riding on a war horse, they would have been sorely disappointed. Because what they get is Jesus from Nazareth, like nowheresville, and his first act as king is to stand in line for baptism. No, uh, make a hole, right, coming through. He stands in line with all the sinners, to get baptized. We'll come back to that in a second. I just want to show you the final announcement, the royal announcement that's given here. It's right after 
his baptism, we're told in verse 10, we're given this amazing scene that when Jesus comes out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, that word immediately is going to come up lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of times in Mark because uh, Mark isn't wasting his time just giving you extraneous details. He wants to give you the action. So we'll talk about this next week because it comes up again there, but it's just worth noting. This word immediately is going to move the story along. But what I really want you to see here is the way in which Jesus looks up, sees that the heavens are torn open, the spirit descending and an audible voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So the first announcement comes from Mark, verse one. The second announcement comes from Isaiah from 600 years ago uh, in verse two. The third announcement comes from John, the one who steps on the stage and says, the one you've waited for is here. And now the final announcement, at least in this section, and the most grand of all is from heaven itself. Now, look, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. You can look, you can look in your concordance. You're not going to find it. Okay. But when God appears at times like this, not every time, but at at times like this, we should pay attention because in a sense, heaven is being torn open for us as well in this moment, because we are getting a glimpse of the mysterious inner life of God himself. One God, three persons. And we see each one of them take their role in what is going to become this drama of redemption. It's, it's Jesus who in faithful obedience as the son, the second person of the Trinity is obeying the father, even in this moment of baptism, which we'll talk about in a second. But then he sees the Holy Spirit who will anoint him for that work and empower him for that work and even drive him into the wilderness in the next verse showing up on the scene. And then the father himself booming from heaven. This is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. It's as if the joy of the inner life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are spilling over into the world in this moment. And it comes as a yet another affirmation of what Mark is saying, that this is not a message. This is not a message that we should easily dismiss or ignore. This isn't a message that goes into, you know, the spam folder of our hearts. This isn't a message we can uh, put on our calendar to get back to in a week. This is a message that comes at you and grabs hold of you and demands that you do something with it. That Jesus uh, is not, Mark says, just a teacher we can learn from. We can learn from him. He's, He's not just a representative from heaven, like an ambassador who can teach us things about the culture of heaven. This is God himself in the flesh. And if we take Mark on, on his own terms in this royal announcement, we need to take that seriously. Now, this royal announcement leads to a different kind of announcement, or at least a different kind of message. So we want to say, first of all, this message is a royal announcement, but it's also kingdom conflict. Um, Anytime you make a statement like this in enemy-occupied territory, there's going to be some conflict. Okay, anytime someone comes in and says, I'm the king and I'm bringing the kingdom with me, is what Jesus says in verse 15, like the kingdom's coming with me, there is going to be conflict because there are other people who think they're the king and that their kingdom is the kingdom that needs to win the day. So let's just take a semi-silly example just, to, just so you feel 
on the visceral level what's happening here. So let's just say later on today, uh, I decided uh, to drive over to Annapolis and uh, to find my way onto the campus of, uh, of the Naval Academy and uh, to march through the grounds of the Naval Academy, chanting at the top of my lungs, beat Navy. Okay? And let's just make this more interesting. Let's just say that I brought my first, first T-shirt I pulled out of the drawer today. I, I, I had this shirt on, okay? Let's say I had that shirt on while I was saying that. That'll just make it a little more interesting. And then let's just say I brought my, my pin, the first pin I pulled out, and my notepad. All right, let's say I had all these things, and I'm marching through the grounds of the Naval Academy, enemy-occupied territory, depending on who you are, chanting beat Navy, right? Declaring the supremacy of one school over another. Now, it's all in good fun, but what witnesses would say after the assault on your pastor would be... We're not going to tolerate that. Like, no, that's not, that's not the school that wins in this place. Now, I should say, especially on a day like today, it is all in good fun. It's all in good competition, and all the service academies love each other, except for one day a year, right? Other than that, we love each other. We're on the same team. Nevertheless, you can kind of get the sense of the, the conflict that that sort of audacious, even borderline dangerous statement might make. You have Mark stepping into the Roman Empire and saying, someone greater than Caesar is here. You know, stepping into the Jewish world, waiting for the Messiah and saying, the one you've waited for, he's here. John the Baptist, who receives the highest praise of any other human being from the mouth of Jesus, says about the one who was coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Or I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes or he's going to baptize with whole, I, I just baptize with water. He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And so this conflict, this conflict that Jesus incites, this conflict that Jesus walks into happens in a few different places. I want to show us, show us in, the, in this passage. First of all, in the water, right? So in the water, verse nine, Jesus shows up. And the first thing that he does is get baptized. Now, the first question you might have when you hear that is, why? I mean, we just found out a few verses before that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was for the, it was for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus didn't sin, that he was the sinless one. In fact, all of us here who are Christians are banking on the fact that Jesus was the sinless one perfect. He was like us in every way, the Bible says, and yet without sin. So why is Jesus getting baptized? Well, Matthew chapter three helps us here. So one of the things you can do when you're reading the gospels is to take passages that show up in a few different places and compare them to each other. Sometimes they fill out the story and Matthew three fills out the story in this way. John the Baptist asks that question. So when Jesus shows up, John says, what are you doing here? I just told all these people, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This isn't going to work. Like, this is not good optics. And Jesus says, I am, I am here because I must fulfill all righteousness. That is to say, Jesus gets baptized not for himself. Jesus gets baptized for us. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He is obeying the Father in every way. And, and, and even more than that, what's happening in his baptism is a symbolic gesture that will define his mission. 
Theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this, beautifully puts it like this. Jesus stands in the river where penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins, and now he is allowing that water, polluted by their sins, to be poured over his perfect being. He is identifying with sinners like you and me from the very beginning. And more than that, I would say, he is showing up to fight for you. Not just in the water, but also in the wilderness. Verse 12, we're told the spirit drives him, Jesus, into the wilderness. That when you think wilderness, don't think wilderness lodge at Disney. Uh, don't think, you know, a nice walk in, uh, in, in, uh, in the woods or some sort of lovely alpine vista, but think desert, think barren, uh, think dry, think wild animals. That's what Mark wants us to think of, that Jesus was there with the wild animals. This is a place that is, um, um, that is in, in a sense, God forsaken to the human eye. This is not a place where life thrives. This is a place where people go to get tested. People go to be, in this case, tempted because Jesus isn't just entering into the wilderness. He's entering into this battle with Satan. And as soon as we read that, we should be thinking not just Old Testament wilderness stories. We should be going further back in the Bible and remembering that there was a battle that started a long time ago in the garden. When Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, just as Jesus is tempted here, to doubt God's word, to doubt God's goodness, to disobey him, and that's what they did. They gave in to that temptation. They decided that they were going to be the kings of their lives. They were going to call the shots. They knew what was best for them. And so they rebelled against God and went their own way. And as a result, they plunged themselves, all of humanity and all of creation into corruption, sin, and death. And Mark says, along comes the second Adam, the greater Adam, the one who enters not the garden in all of its glory and beauty, but the wilderness of a sin-devastated world. He enters into the full wilderness of the world that you and I woke up in this morning, in which car accidents happen and terrorist attacks happen and pediatric cancer wards exist and violence and injustice happen. Jesus enters into that world and does battle. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam prevails. Where Adam caved under the pressure of temptation, Jesus stands up underneath it. In other words, Jesus enters into the wilderness because he is all in for us. He's fighting for you. He's fighting for me. You know, I think sometimes, I, I don't know, I've probably heard a number of sermons or read a number of books about this passage over the years, you know, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And often the number one lesson that's given is that um, this is a blueprint for how to overcome temptation. So the title of the sermon is like, how to overcome temptation in your life. You look at the way Jesus overcame temptation against Satan. And you get a little more of that out of the other uh, gospel writers than this one. And and that's a good lesson to learn, but I would just respectively say, I, I, I don't think that's actually what this passage is about. I don't think it's about 
how you fight against temptation. I think this passage is about the fact that Jesus enters into the wilderness and fights for us. Yes, we should fight sin and evil in our lives. Absolutely. But the point of this passage is that Jesus enters into that fight for you, that the spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted for you. And this just begins to fill out for us what it meant for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, to be the sinless one. Sometimes we think like, you know, Jesus was just like, Yes, he was perfect, but we often think that means he never really faced any temptation. You know, the kind of stuff we face. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he was like us in every way that he experienced the full wilderness of this broken world with all of its temptations, even squaring off with Satan himself face to face. And yet Jesus never sinned. And if you know what it's like to wrestle with temptation, just like to wrestle with lust or with greed or with anger, or with, or with chronic worry and anxiety that just causes you to doubt God's goodness over and over again. If you know what that struggle's like, then you know something of what it was like for Jesus to really enter into that for you. Not just once, not just twice, twice, but from the moment he was born until the moment he breathed his last. Jesus is all your righteousness. So Mark's pointing that out to us right away so that he can also set up for us this word gospel. And this is the third kind of message this is, not gospel. It's a royal announcement. It's a kingdom conflict. It's a personal invitation. Notice the word gospel shows up three times in 15 verses at the beginning and at the end of our passage this morning. So uh, I'm, I'm reading some cinematic imagery into this. Okay. So I'm not trying to force this onto you, but this is just the way I imagine this passage unfolding. Mark is going like scene by scene by scene, like real quick cuts. And then we get to verse 15 and it's like, Jesus breaks the fourth wall. Do you know what that means? So it means the fourth wall between the audience and the actor is here. And so, um, you know, Ferris Bueller's day off, um, he breaks the fourth wall by turning and looking at you and addressing you as the audience. And here, uh, Jesus seems to almost turn to us in this last moment and look directly at us and explain to us why everything that's been described in Mark is not just something that happens out there. It's something that we, we need to enter into. The time is fulfilled, he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's like, this this can't wait. Like, you need to grapple with this now. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. To repent, just to kind of help explain it in the terms we've been talking about, is to turn away from all of those lesser authorities in our lives, including ourselves, and including the actions that that sort of, um, that authority calls us to, the sort of rebellion against God, the, the way we want to get our way. It's turning away from that and to Jesus. And then it's also believing in the gospel um, see, this is something that, that Christianity offers that no other world religion offers. No other uh, philosophy would, would think this way. And, and uh, the Christianity says that, that at the heart of Jesus's message is what Jesus has done 
for you. Every other world religion says at the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God, it means you have to do this, this, and this, or you have to follow these rules, or you have to obey in these ways, or follow this path. And if you do that, maybe, just maybe, if you do it well enough, God will love you and accept you and save you. But Christianity says no. At the heart of what it means to have a relationship with God is to receive, to believe in this good news that Jesus has done it all for you that he's lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he's gone to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins or for the, uh, uh, for the sins that, that you and I have committed and he's conquered death and he will take us with him forever. This is at the heart of what Mark is saying, that it is faith in this gospel, this one who delivers good news. So 15 verses, man. We got a little ways to go. That's a lot to absorb, just to think about everything Mark is throwing at us in the first 15 verses. Like the introduction of the book tells us that we have some good things ahead of us, but maybe challenging things. Like it could be that even as you're thinking of all this, you're like, I'm just not really sure where I am uh, in my relationship with Jesus. I'm not sure I can buy all this. I mean, you've got, Ryan, you've got like doves descending from heaven and voices from heaven. You've got all kinds of crazy stuff going on in this passage. I, I, I don't know exactly where I am with that. And that, look, all of us have to figure out what we're going to do with this message, what we make of it. And the great thing about Mark, the great thing about Mark is if you're kind of grappling with who Jesus is, you're in good company because this story is going to unfold among people who have no idea who Jesus is. Like even his closest disciples are still trying to figure it out by chapter eight. So, my advice to you, if this just seems really strange to you, just doesn't, you're not really sure it's something that you want to fully give yourself over to, let me just encourage you to hang in there. Let Mark make his case. Like, what's the harm in that? Let Mark make his case. Uh, one of the ways that we, that we want to help you do that, um, this feels a little bit like an advert, so just kind of forgive me for this, but I, you know, we, I want to put this up in front of you because we... Um, we think this would re might be a very helpful way for you to follow along with us. So um, uh, we, uh, we have purchased for you gospel, a copy of the Gospel of Mark, um, but this particular one has the gospel on one side of the page and, and space to write on the other. Uh, included in that is a reading plan, so you can read along with us. Um, and the reason I want to hold this up in front of you is because I, want, I really want to encourage you, kind of no matter where you are in your relationship with the Lord, to engage this, this gospel as we, as we move through it, um, to ask yourselves questions like, okay, what are the lesser authorities that really are at the center of my life that I need to repent of and believe the gospel? Because that's not just the message that saves you, it's the message that changes you. It's as we continually turn away from those authorities that allure us and turn to Jesus. So we're going to have these for you, and we'd love for you to grab one. They're going to be right back there or off to my right, your left. There'll be some over on that side or by the Welcome Center, some downstairs. We're probably going to run out, and we'll bring some more back uh, next week. But um, please take one of these, and if you take one, um, read the Gospel of Mark with us and engage with it. Engage with it so that we really can be on this uh, journey together. Last thing I'll say, Mark is making a case at the very beginning of his book that this message is too good to ignore. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's too good to miss. 
So let's not miss it. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you so much that you have um, uh, given us these words that, uh, that just present Jesus to us in new and refreshing ways, whether these are the, this is the first time we've ever read these words or uh, the thousandth, thousandth time we've read these words. Lord, thank you um, that you are so gentle and gracious that you would continue to show us who Jesus is and what it means to trust in him. We pray that uh, as we go, that you would uh, help us to remember these things and to trust in you and to, um, to believe the gospel more and more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.